The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Episode 18, Climate Crisis and the River Catewalker. Laura Hansen, Ph.D., is with me today, and she will talk of how we can no longer disregard the inevitability of drastic climate change. So many decisive factors are affected by these changes that we are in crisis, a climate crisis that affects everything we do. Time to do something about it. Reducing emissions of greenhouse gases is a big piece of the solution problem. Yet, today we're going to talk more about how we also have to figure out how to deal with all the effects of the climate crisis, from sea level rise to warming waters, less oxygen to the spread of diseases. Climate crisis must factor into the decisions we make about natural resource management, about community developments and how we live in, a changing, in changing watersheds. Dr. Laura Hansen of EcoAdapt is going to tell us on how to draw on ecosystem experiences and insights to offer proven tools for eco-stewards and environmental guardians. These tools include uh, CAKE, which is uh, short for Climate Adaptation Knowledge and Exchange. Knowledge Exchange. This is an innovative community of practice, and Laura, Laura also has a new book out called Climate Savvy, Adapting Conservation and Resource Management to a Changing World, and that's on Island Press. Uh, Forty-five minutes uh, past the hour... Uh, I'm going to be talking with Ocean Champions Mike Dunmeyer, and Mike will tell us how on March 12th the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 36050, the Harmful Algal Bloom and Hypoxia Ocean Dead Zone Research and Control Act. So that will be at near the end of the program. Um, let me introduce Laura. Laura, are you there? I'm here. Hey, it's great to have you here. I'm going to... Um, say a little bit about um, who you are and why you're so competent in everything you do here. Uh, Laura J. Hansen is co-founder and chief scientist and executive director of EcoAdapt. Dr. Hansen focuses her work on the redesign of conservation to incorporate responses to climate change. She's the lead author on the issue of natural system adaptation to climate change. The publication is called Buying Time, a user's manual for building resistance and resilience to climate change and natural systems. This manual leads to the development of an engaged stakeholder process to help resource managers create applicable adaptation strategies. She serves on the Nobel Peace Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
is a Switzer environmental fellow and a United States Environmental Protection Agency bronze medalist. Dr. Hansen has a Ph.D. in ecology from the University of California, Davis, and a B.A. in biology from, University, from UC Santa Cruz. Uh, she lives on Bainbridge Island in Puget Sound. Lucky you. And Laura loves, Laura loves being in, and on, in or on water. Uh, she's an equal opportunity swimmer of oceans, lakes, rivers, even pools from time to time, and a kayaker uh, that tags along with a sailor, too. Laura, it's great to have you on the program. Are you talking to us from uh, Bainbridge? I am on beautiful Bainbridge Island experiencing another El Nino-inspired sunny day. Wow. Um, so so we've, got some, we've got some problems out there. And, Indeed, we uh, do. <laughs> rather than, than go through the litany of the problems uh, and, and what's, being, what's happening as a result of the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, uh, let's talk about some of the historic uh, cornerstones of how we have done and are doing preservation for wildlife and ecosystems. Oh. So um, perhaps you could give us a case study to illustrate the more... Uh, a more climate crisis-savvy, adaptive approach. Sure. Uh, for example, one cornerstone might be for wildlife preservation is uh, species protection. Yeah, absolutely. They, we have some very standard ways that we have taken care of conservation and resource management over the past few centuries. And climate change is uh, making all of those approaches vulnerable. Um, Species protection is one of our favorite tools. Um, it's the basis of the Endangered Species Act. There are lots of state acts that do similar things. This method can be found around the world. And one of the species that's been um, lucky enough to benefit from this, although unlucky enough to have its numbers decreased, are actually almost any of the species of sea turtles. Sea turtles um, can be protected in a number of ways. One is that we limit the amount of bycatch turtles are taken in fisheries, um, but we also protect the beaches that they nest on. Um, and with sea level rise, um, anyone who is even a casual student of the, the reality of, sea le- of climate change knows that sea level rise is one of the effects that we're already starting to see. Um, sea level rise means that those beaches that we're protecting for the turtles to nest on um, are uh, being inundated with water, and uh, if there's something behind the beach, they're disappearing. Um, in a world where humans hadn't built uh, roads and houses and cities along the coastline, which is where most of the world's population lives, um, we, those beaches would be able to naturally migrate inland. So in, in a new world approach to how you would deal with uh, species protection, you wouldn't simply protect the beach on the shoreline. Um, rather what you would do is you would prepare for where the beach was going to be going. The beach would be moving inland. As the, sea, as the shoreline moves inland, the beach would move inland to a point. There are some limits to it. Um, and so the new method of conservation would be that you would help the people who lived in the region plan for the effects of climate change on the other infrastructural pieces as well. So not only protect coastline inland, but also look at those places where there are roads that are behind beaches and recognize that those roads themselves are going to be vulnerable to climate change. And one of the things you could do would be to re-engineer the roads so that they were lifted up and the beach could go underneath them, or you could simply move them much farther inland. 
And there are similar strategies that can be taken with buildings as well, moving them in, putting them up on stilts, um, a whole host of things that allow you to be aware of the dynamic nature that coastlines now provide and end up protecting beach space for nesting sea turtles. Right, because a lot of these beaches that the turtles are nesting on are, uh, some of them are sandy barrier, barrier islands where you've got the, you know, the beach and then the dune and then behind the dune is where the road is. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, so your suggestion is that in addition to the beach patrols that go on right now for this year's mating, uh, of, of nesting, uh, turtles, that you should look inland and somehow help them Maybe not across the street, but under it? Uh, under the street or recognize that as those dunes are going to be migrating back as well, you're going to be losing that road anyway. Yeah. So rather than continuing to try and have this battle of maintaining a road at sea level, um, let's either move it up or move it back. And then for all those wonderful places that are hotels right up against the shore, um, we're going to have to figure out a way to accommodate the turtles in the hotel. Perhaps they can check in. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought you were suggesting that we could uh, maybe uh, set up accommodations underground below the hotel. Or... Right. Well, it, so in many of those cases, those hotels themselves are going to become vulnerable to climate change. And in some states, those hotels may actually have to start moving because of rolling easement rules. Um, that's going to be a fascinating thing for us all to work through is the rules of how close you're allowed to build to the shoreline as the shoreline is coming to you. Right. Um, that's going to make it really difficult. It let's is. Move so on to another one, cornerstone. Um, pardon? Let's move on to another cornerstone. Absolutely. Of, uh, of preservation. Um, you know, like another one, I guess, is uh, protected areas. Yep. Protected areas is a great tool. It's a way that we can um, create boundaries around a space and make sure that nothing is built on it, no other development occurs, um, and you can protect that space seemingly in perpetuity. Um, unfortunately, a lot of places um, will be will be affected by climate change. In fact, certainly almost every protected area will be affected by climate change, some more dramatically. Um, Palmyra Atoll is in the Pacific Ocean. It, ha- it is a small island. Um, it has a maximum elevation of about two meters or six feet. Um, sea level rise projections mean that um, the majority of that atoll will be lost, um, and eventually all of it might be because of the combination of factors of storm surge and erosion and continuing sea level rise. Um, buying that island, part of the impetus by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Nature Conservancy was that they wanted to protect um, the, the coral reef around it, but they also wanted to protect um, nesting bird habitat. Um, Nesting birds on a submerged island don't do quite so well, so things like the black-footed albatross, which are likely out there, um, will have a bit more challenge. Um, we need to well, start thinking... I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're running out of time, okay. and we'll be back after this break to talk more with Laura Hansen and birds of the Palmyra Atoll. Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Spread the green. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Corrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Corrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back. Episode 18 is Climate Crisis and the River Cakewalker. With me is Dr. Laura Hansen, and she is the Chief Scientist and Executive Director of EcoAdapt. Laura, is there an um, email uh, or is there a website that people can go to? Yep, you can check out what we're doing at ecoadapt.org. Well, that's easy. Thank you. Uh, you were telling us about climate. the climate crisis is creating... Uh, threatening conditions for birds trying to nest on the Palmyra Atoll out in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, so we thought that by creating protected areas, we could protect species in the places they used, but Palmyra Atoll is a great example of sea level rise um, slowly inundating a low-lying island, um, and the nesting birds that use that space are going to have to start looking for other places. Um, and our strategy for protecting species that use the tops of islands um, uh, will require that we start thinking about 
dramatic things. We either have to think about where those birds may naturally find their way to nest otherwise, because they probably will try to find somewhere else to land when Palmyra Atoll becomes too inundated. Um, or we could do really dramatic things. We could place barges in that same area and try and make them look like habitat. We could try and build up the island by dredging and bringing materials in. Um, these are all decisions we have to make as a society about what it is we want to do and how engineered we want to make our world in response to the changes that we're causing by burning fossil fuels and emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Wow, it's a whole new game. It used to be, you know, you protected an area and you could sleep at night knowing that that's protected forever, you know. And now with the climate crisis upon us, these areas are, are, might disappear if we don't take actions. Yeah, or um, be substantially degraded so they don't provide the same ecosystem services that they did for the species that live there. Ah, uh, yes. So we were looking at sort of the four historic cornerstones of how we've been doing preservation work, and, and you talked a bit about protected areas and before that about um, species protection. Um, what about restoration? Yeah, restoration is a great tool. I mean, we've already degraded lots of spots on the planet through both human activity and some natural activity, um, natural processes, and the we have techniques for trying to restore things to the conditions they were in. Um, a great example of one of these efforts going on right now is the Everglades. Huge amounts of effort are being taken to try and restore the the, the past water flow to the Everglades. Um, which is a noble and important activity for us to undertake because of all the species that live in that region that rely on that. I mean, you've got populations of alligators, you've got the endangered Florida panther, you've got beautiful birds like the roseate spoonbill and anhanga. You've got all sorts of things going on down in the Everglades that rely on the hydrology and have been... Um, uh, that their, their numbers have been depleted or their uh, conditions have been damaged. And so these efforts to restore the Everglades are really important. Unfortunately, climate change is working against those efforts in some ways. I mean, again, you have sea level rise inundating the southern portion of the Everglades. A huge percentage of the Everglades is expected to be submerged by with salt water rather than fresh water before the end of the century. You've got altered precipitation patterns in the region, meaning that it rains harder um, at some times of the year and not at all at other times of the year. Um, and you've designed a restoration plan based on the conditions before that reality. Um, so we need to start thinking about restoration a little bit differently. We need to start thinking about how do you prepare for future conditions rather than trying to restore to past conditions um, in order to have a successful environmental regime in these areas that you think need some form of restoration. And how do we do that? I mean, we have to think more adaptively, right? Like, think more about resilience or something? Yeah, well, it's important to think more about resilience, but it's also important to, in the case of a place like the Everglades, where we have a pretty good idea of where sea level rise is occurring, while you're restoring these um, these historic flows or maybe even doing some physical restoration by removing old channels that were created, um, Think about how sea level rise will be affecting that, and you can map out pretty well where sea level rise is going to be inundating regions, and maybe some of those regions that are going to be inundated quite soon, you spend less of your effort on, and you allocate more of your effort upstream, thinking about how you're going to um, allow the water flow to naturally respond uh, to these flood and drought cycles that we're expecting to see more of. 
So it's, right. it's a matter right. of using what we know about the likely future conditions um, to apply it to get a more uh, successful scenario for the future. And excellent. So the fourth uh, cornerstone for preservation work would be uh, regulation. Yeah, so classic things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the things that have provided us um, with decreased exposure to environmental contaminants. These are also the things that regulate fisheries. They're the things that regulate forest take. All of the things that limit the way in which we damage the world around us. Um, the one I like to talk about the most is water quality because I also have a background in toxicology. Um, and the water quality criteria, the, the, the limits that are set for how much of a contaminant can go into the water, and this is anything from industrial contaminants to uh, nutrients um, from farming, um, all those things have numbers, the, the concentration that's allowed to be in a water body that receives this runoff. And those numbers are based on the historic environmental conditions that we saw as the normal environmental conditions. So that has to do with things like temperature and pH. Um, unfortunately, those are two things that climate change is altering rather dramatically and rather quickly. Um, and our regulations aren't necessarily keeping up with that in a lot of places. So, for example, if you think about a lot of contaminants, their toxicity changes with climate change. Um, as temperature increases, um, some contaminants, um, some toxins become more toxic. Um, some contaminants, some contaminants also, some species also become more sensitive to contaminants because, for example, with fish, you warm the water up that they're in, it speeds up their metabolic rate, it speeds their rate of respiration, so they're taking more water over their gills and they're absorbing more of these contaminants. Um, so we need to actually start, we need to create a new method for how we think about regulations. We need to revisit them and make sure that we're paying attention to changes in the environmental conditions that can alter toxicity. Um, and we may need to ratchet down the allowable concentrations um, of harmful chemicals in response to these changes and come up with mechanisms that allow for that ratcheting. And in places where those mechanisms exist, actually start using them. So we have to be monitoring the world around us. And that's important for all four of these cornerstones and making them continue to work is really paying attention to the change that's going on. Um, yes. In the case of the regulations, there's some scary change going on. Um, for example, in Canada, they're actually determining that there is the glaciers that are melting because of climate change um, are starting to release things like DDT and PCBs that were tied up in them from the 1950s and 60s because that's tied the up in the glacial ice. Yeah, and they move into the lakes and they become available again to fish. Uh oh. So you're seeing increases in, in toxic levels in Canadian lakes where they're getting melt off of the glaciers. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't expect that. We didn't expect things to be changing like this. No, no, we did not. I think we thought that we were safely past all of the, the organochlorine exposure that was so prominent in the middle part of the last century, and now it's coming back to revisit us. So how do we adapt our regulations to address this? Well, we actually make sure that we're putting into place the tool, the, the, the mechanisms for monitoring that kind of change that's going on in the environment. So checking to see what pH and temperature are like in the receiving waters, for example, um, and then adjusting the allowable concentrations in the water based on those changes so that you're not creating a more and more toxic soup. So what you really need to, the regulators need to ratchet down on the values of, Harmful chemicals? 
Yeah, it, well, if that's what if that's what the the water chemistry is telling them, yeah. Yeah, wow. It's a complicated story out there. It is a complicated story. I mean, you were talking earlier about how we thought when we created protected areas, we were making things safe. And while I frequently will argue that that was never true because of contaminants and the facts that they moved everywhere, things like mercury and DDT that could travel throughout the world, um, climate change really puts a point to the fact that all of the things, all of the assumptions that we've been making over the past few centuries in how we do conservation and resource management all need to be revisited. Right, right. So the old battles go on, and now we have new dimensions and new battles. And part of it is the the old battles going on, but us being aware of the reality of climate change laid over those battles. That's a good way to put it, yeah. People shouldn't think about climate change separately. They need to think of it as part of everything else. I frequently, when I lived in Washington, D.C., got to go up to the to Capitol Hill and talk to policymakers, and I would argue that they, um, in fact, needed to apply the reality of climate change to every single piece of legislation that they passed, including health care reform, including uh, um, uh, bills that had to do with appropriations. All of it needed to have the reality of climate change on, because it is a game changer. We'll be back with Laura Hansen after the break. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the Game Plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the Game Plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time all together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. 
eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking the climate crisis. And we're talking with a river cakewalker, Dr. Laura Hansen. And Laura, um, what can people do to, um, in their approaches to, we, you were talking about how we have to make adaptations for climate change. And what, what can people do about that closer to home? Well, there's a tremendous amount that can be done close to home because, um, as I like to refer to this, this is a growth industry and it's wide open. <laughs> um, we need to start taking climate change into our everyday lives, um, lots of important decisions are made at the municipal and county level, um, especially having to do with water issues. Um, and it's important for people to bring climate change into their local dialogue. Most places are not thinking about climate change. They're not including it in their county plans or their watershed management plans. Um, there are some great examples of people that are, but the majority of the world isn't including this in their daily decisions yet. Uh, if people get involved in climate change, they do it by writing a letter saying, please sign on to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Copenhagen Accord. Um, they don't um, think about how will this affect the way my county does planning. Um, and people need to be the the inoculant of that idea in their community, um, observing what's going on, what they think is going to be changing because of climate change, and then getting action put into place um, that can protect local resources um, from perhaps our greatest environmental challenge ever. Yeah, it's a real challenge in helping people to see what they see in front of them. You know, if they, they see a river flowing low or at low water, it's like, well, that's just unusual or that is not unusual. Um, or if they see, you know, red tide blooming off their shore or something, uh, it's, it, it, we need, you know, we need educators like you who are telling us the stories of what's going on out there. And it's, there are great people in your community who have lived there for decades who can see the change themselves. Um, and you need to talk to those people. It helps you avoid shifting baseline, um, which is where you, you see change, but it happens so incrementally that you miss it. When you have people that have lived there for decades who can say, it was never like this, um, they can pull that out for you and say, this is the local effect. Yeah, Jeremy Jackson's shifting baselines is an excellent approach where, you know, we need, we need to know what's, what's normal so we can recognize the abnormal. Yep. What, what's the normal heartbeat so we know the heart's not beating properly? Um, and, and are there some frameworks for adaptation that we should think about? Yeah, so my group, um, we've developed uh, sort of five what we refer to as tenets of adaptation um, to help people figure out how to apply it to what they're doing. Um, they're pretty simple, um, but we think they do quite a bit. So the first one is a place people are comfortable with. It's about space, getting people to make sure that they're protecting adequate and appropriate space for climate change. So that means thinking about connectivity as species ranges shift. Um, 
thinking about locations that aren't changing as much, what we call climate refugia. And there are some places that do a little bit better, and you can look at records of interglacial periods and how trees have moved to identify where some of those are. Um, but for freshwater systems, this can be a huge challenge. If you live in a river that runs east-west, you're not going to be able to move up. Um, so the second tenant is reducing all the non-climate stressors, um, things like contaminants that I was just talking about, things like ober harvest. Um, get rid of all those so that you don't have this multiple stress system that um, species can't adjust to. The third thing is managing for uncertainty. Um, we don't know everything about how climate change is going to play out, um, and, but we also know there's going to be a lot of variability in however it plays out, which means you have to prepare for a lot of different future scenarios, not just what the model tells you the world will look like in 2100, because that's probably not going to be spot on, certainly not spot on enough for how you would develop a county development plan. Hmm. The fourth thing is limiting uh, climate change affects locally. So there's a lot you can do locally to try to ameliorate some of these effects. Riparian zones, for example, that are maintained well um, tend to decrease streamwater temperatures and create microclimates along riverways. Um, and finally, we need to limit global climate change. We actually need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 85% by 2050, and we need to have near-term targets along that path to 2050, um, and we need to be very serious about becoming a carbon-free uh, energy world. Excellent. So a climate crisis-savvy individual learns how to read the landscape and recognize that the trees shading the river are playing an important part to the the fish ecology in the river, not just for the person on the bank having a sandwich or something. A absolutely. And the other thing a climate-savvy viewer of the world does is recognize the interconnectedness between the responses that humans have for humans to climate change and the responses that are needed to protect the natural environment from climate change. One of my big worries is that um, we will develop adaptation strategies or responses for human communities that do more to damage the natural world at a time when we really need the functionality of the natural world because it's the functionality of the natural world and how eventually um, carbon stabilizes in the carbon cycle um, that's going to uh, not get us out of this mess but limit this mess to some degree. And the more damage we do to that natural system, um, the less of a possible solution we have. Yeah, we're seeing that where rivers flow through communities, and all of a sudden the communities are flooding and having flood problems like never before. And yet when they messed around with the watershed, they figured, oh, that's no big deal. It's not going to affect anything. Exactly. And my fear is that people are going to want more, more river walls rather than recognizing that you need uh, natural flow of the river and you need room for the river to flood out into in order for it to avoid the larger calamity downstream. Yeah, we're seeing in Massachusetts like a 20% until the current recession, about 20% more asphalt and building happening every year in the region. And all that, you know, uh, impermeable surfaces don't help any. They certainly don't. <laughs> and they don't help re recharge of aquifers, um, which will is part of our um, insurance policy against drought periods. They don't help us avoid flooding during the periods where we have increased 
rainfall, all that variability that I was talking about, we're not planning for in our human development systems or in our natural resource management. And it's so, something we desperately have to do. A local solution is to treat the water off your parking lot and put it back into the ground, right, rather than put it into the storm drain? or it, Exactly. Put in permeable um, surfaces instead of impermeable asphalts. Um, yeah. Make sure that you uh, are... Uh, if you're going to collect rainwater, do it in a manner that's environmentally uh, supportive rather than damaging. So uh, big reservoirs aren't the best solution, um, coming up with ways for wetlands to hold on to water. Out in the West, there's a movement to reintroduce beavers to a lot of places where they've been depleted um, because the expression is that beavers make mountain sponges. Um, so get the, the, the mountain itself to hold the water rather than building the reservoir down lower. That's so cool. In the 1950s, the Forest Service parachuted beavers into a dry fire zone area of Colorado just for that reason, was to get some water held back in the watershed to uh, make it a more, more moist area. I love the images of that. I actually have a picture yeah. of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they put them in boxes. They didn't get to wear the parachutes. They had to, they had to come down in boxes that would open up and stuff. Yeah. Poor guys, they would have had more fun with the actual parachute. Yeah, so, I mean, the the important thing about getting all of this into people's um, outlook is that this is sort of our new way of life. Um, climate change isn't something that's going to go away. Um, I think that people are a bit misled whenever they see the models that are set for 2100. That's where most climate models are, are stop. Um, there's a belief that we just have to make it through this 100-year bottleneck and it'll all be okay, um, when in reality, a lot of the changes that we're putting into motion will take uh, many centuries, um, perhaps one or 2,000 years, maybe more, who knows, before they stabilize and, and reach a new steady state. Um, so that's a long time of change. That's generations. So we need to just be getting this into the philosophy that we uh, use when we make resource management and development decisions um, and think about it as a problem we're dealing with in perpetuity. Yeah, the impacts and effect are not going to be gradual. There's either going to be enough space to nest or to, for a turtle to go to, or there isn't. And so it's episodic in the problems of, you know, either the watershed can absorb the water or everyone's going to have it in their basements. And, and uh, you know. Yeah, and, and I really do think that climate change is one of those situations where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And this is true both in terms of adaptation, the responses that we've been talking about over the course of this hour, and mitigation, the actual stopping of the emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Um, both of those things, if done early and thoughtfully, can save us a lot of hassle later on. Absolutely. Laura, it's really been great for you to talk with us on the show today. Um, where can people go to find out more about uh, your work, Dr. Hansen, or um, the work of EcoAdapt and, and all of this? You can visit uh, our, the EcoAdapt website at ecoadapt.org, or you can visit the Climate Adaptation Knowledge Exchange, which is a way we're setting up for people to share lessons about climate change adaptation um, at cakex.org, C-A-K-E-X. 
org. Right now, it's a blog of sharing my thoughts about climate change. Um, but starting on July 4th, our Adaptation Independence Day, um, there, the site will launch and people will be able to join the community, get more information, share the lessons they've been learning. Yes, www.cakex.org is a great, it's going to be a great site to go to to get, I mean, Laura, you were showing it to me earlier, you know, where people can go get stories. They can go to a map and say where they want to be on the map and, and what's the story, what's the case study of what's happening in your community or in a community of interest. It's a fabulous resource. I commend the, the funders and for the foresight of, of putting it together and for hiring you to do it. I thank them, too. <laughs> Uh, we're going to, um, yeah, we're, we're going to uh, take a break now, and uh, Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions is on the line, and we'll be back to learn more about uh, harmful algal blooms hitting the coasts of America. Network. Our experts want to hear your voice. Do you have a question or comment for our hosts? Call us toll free 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America business channel get ready for a show that breaks ground on the subject of women in motorsports and what it takes to dream believe achieve gas and go with alio is all about the movement that is happening lightning fast in women's racing you'll get a wide array of perspectives from the drivers to the fans as well as what it takes to be a role model in a male-dominated sport join your host professional driver alio 
for Gas and Go with LEO. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions, he's executive director, has just telephoned in. Hi, Mike. Hey, Rob. How are you today? Excellent. And uh, in the last episode, um, we were talking about the harmful algal bloom and the the dead zone and the seas um, legislation in the House. And uh, it wasn't looking good, and you were heading up the hill to find out what what went wrong and what could go right. So how's how's it going? Yeah, it's, it's actually it's a great story. So uh, when last we spoke, the, the day prior on March 9th, the bill had, had fallen seven votes shy of the two-thirds necessary to pass under unanimous consent because the Republicans had whipped against it uh, for partisan reasons. And so we, right after the show, I went around and started meeting with our various champions on the Hill. So Brian Baird, who was the sponsor, um, Bart Gordon, who was the chair of the Science and Tech Committee that owned the bill, who was a big supporter, Connie Mack. Uh, a big Republican supporter and, and some others. And what we saw was tremendous resolve. These guys were angry that this issue had become political and they were determined to get it passed. And what they said was, look, you know, in most situations, this could kill a bill, but we want to bring it back to the floor under a rule. Uh, but we had further conversations then with some committee staff and the committee staff said, look, we need leadership in the House to agree to do this. So it would really help if they could see that this matters to people. Uh, and we didn't have much time, but we put out an e-blast to our activist base. And, Rob, within about two hours, we had 1,200 letters coming into the committee staff and five organizations sending letters on their letterhead saying, let's pass this bill. And that really provided the additional boost that, uh, that these champions needed to get leadership to pay attention get it back to the floor, and they actually held Congress in session an extra day just to vote on this bill, and it passed the House by a wide margin, uh, so we were thrilled. It was, it was a big victory for, for our champions in Congress. It's a good bill that can do a lot for the oceans, and a big victory for our activists who stood up when, when they needed to and really made the difference. It's impressive the, how you covered all corners of the country in, in this bill and all, all quarters of, of the political spectrum in that you were saying that uh, in order to bring the bill to a vote, um, Congresswoman Pingree had, from Maine had to be impressed about the, um, the outpouring of support, you know, right? Pingree and also uh, Majority Leader Hoyer uh, and yes. others who control that legislative calendar, absolutely. So you had support from the Congresswoman of Maine and the Congressman of Washington State and a, a bunch of congresspeople in uh, Florida and, you know, Good job. Yeah, and you know this is the what's so important for us is the connection uh, between electoral work and legislative work. So 
Uh, other than Hoyer, uh, these are all champions of ours uh, that uh, that worked hard, uh, that we worked hard to support and help elect. And once they got in there, these were the kinds of people that were not going to let uh, a political roadblock stop them from passing a good ocean bill. It was exactly what we had hoped to see when we helped these guys uh, win their races. Uh, and, and that's why it all matters. That's why we do this. And even though the Republicans whipped against uh, the bill, all of the Republican ocean champions in Congress voted for the bill and stood up against their own party in this circumstance. So it's, it's really a great story. It was wonderful hearing Republican Connie Mack talking about uh, referencing uh, the ocean champions' involvement. Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he thanked us on the floor, as did Congressman Baird, and then uh, Congressman Mack is actually he's a big social networking guy, and he was tweeting his thanks about Ocean Champions to his followers, so we were really appreciative, and I'm actually going to go and see him and thank him again a little bit later this week. Are you going to go to Florida or just stay in the house? <laughs> we'll, just, <laughs> we'll just stay in the house, unfortunately. <laughs> we'll catch him in Florida another time. What um, about electoral politics coming, looking forward, upcoming? Well, um, I'm glad you asked, um, because we're actually about ready to come out with our first endorsement for 2010, and that is a gentleman named Ed Case, who's running for the, the, the Hawaii uh, congressional seat vacated by uh, Congressman Abercrombie. Um, Representative Case was, or candidate Case, was, was a congressman in the 108th and 109th Congress. He was an ocean champion then, and he did... Uh, he was the big driver behind the Northwest Hawaiian Islands National Marine Monument that uh, Bush yes. signed. He actually uh, wrote a bill to, to include this, and uh, when he couldn't get the bill going, he worked with the Bush administration to make it happen. Uh, so he's a, he's a Democrat, but he can work both sides of the aisle, very effective, very committed to ocean issues, and we're very uh, excited to be able to endorse him and help him win uh, the special election, which will be May 22nd. So I would encourage all the, the listeners of the show, Rob, to check out uh, Ed Case online. Go to his, uh, we'll have information on oceanchampions.org to direct you there because he needs, uh, he needs campaign funding. He's ahead in the polls, but he's got a very tough race. Um, and then the other thing, part of what we do is, is helping the good guys win. Another big thing of what we do is, is trying to beat the bad guys. And back in 2006, we were a part of a broad environmental coalition that helped beat Richard Pombo, ocean enemy number one. Uh, unfortunately, he's back and running again in a different district in California, and we will once again defeat him. Uh, and I don't know if, if people know that much about Pombo, but he used to be the chair of the Natural Resources Committee in the House when he was there. And the first thing he did was change the name from the Natural Resources Committee to just the Resources Committee, because that's how he looks at things. And then he proceeded to make it his life's work to gut the Endangered Species Act. He wanted to drill off of every coast and probably even in some people's pools. Um, <laughs> he wanted to drill in Anwar. He tried to weaken U.S. fisheries law. Uh, so the guy was just horrible on environmental stuff. But in addition to that, uh, he's, he's corrupt. Uh, he paid... His family members, $350,000 uh, out of his campaign funds. He charged the taxpayers $20,000 for a family vacation. He was a part of the Jack Abramoff scandal. Uh, and he took a whole bunch of money from big oil and, and gas and electric and then turned around and showered them with $50 billion worth of subsidies and liability waivers. So guy's bad. We cannot have him back in the house, and we're going to beat him again. Excellent. 
I remember he would not let the Ocean Subcommittee even meet, which just drove everybody crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really you could not draw a better caricature of the evil anti-Oceans guy than Richard Pombo. Um, <laughs> he's so over the top it's, as to be comical if it weren't so scary. Um, but uh, he actually, he, and, and he makes no bones about it, in a recent debate, he said he was going back to D.C. to finish the job he started and then immediately began talking about gutting the Endangered Species Act again. So this is this is what you get. Okay, let's, let's sum up with, uh, Mike, can you tell us What's so good about the Habs bill that went through? Well, what's, what's great about it is that it uh, establishes a national strategy for fighting Habs to align the work of all the different groups that are doing it now, but it recognizes that Habs are different everywhere. So it will direct funding for research in the areas where people don't really know what's causing the blooms. In the areas where they know what's causing it, but they need to transition to ways to mitigate it, it'll fund that transition work. And then there are some areas where... They've actually figured out in labs how they might be able to prevent and control HABs. And in this case, it'll, the, the bill would fund moving those technologies from lab work into the field to actually try and, and stop these toxic algal blooms, which, as we've talked about, they kill fish, they kill habitat, they kill marine mammals and birds, they make people really sick, they shut down fisheries, they cost the U.S. about $100 million every year, and they're getting worse. So we, we think this Thanks, bill Mike. does a lot of good. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Well. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.